Half-Price Horror. Hello and welcome to Half-Price Horror, where we get our terror at a discount and pass the savings on to you. Half-Price Horror is a spoiler-heavy podcast that takes a deep dive into scary movies curated by the selection at the local Half-Price bookstore. I'm your host, John, and today we'll be taking a look at Jason Lives, Friday the 13th, Part 6, from 1986. This is written and directed by Tom McLaughlin, whose previous horror movie, One Dark Night, got him this job. He was asked to do something very different in tone from Part 5, which was a financial success, but which definitely underperformed the previous entries in the series, and to bring back Jason as the antagonist of the series. And it's worth noting that, you know, this is a series that is going to keep going as long as it continues to make money. This is as much a commercial endeavor as an artistic one. That's a natural part of doing commercial movies. You have the movies that are not necessarily going to make you money or that are going to be a risk, and you have the ones that are going to be sure performers that you use to finance those riskier movies. I don't think that anyone involved needs to apologize for making a mercenary decision to keep the franchise going. It's popular, it's fun, and they did end up taking some risks. It's simply because there's no way to move forward at this point without taking some risks. Jason is dead. There's no path forward for the series if you don't do something that is new and different from what's been done before. Uh, bringing us back to uh, Mr. McLaughlin, who spent a whole day watching every Friday the 13th movie back-to-back. Dream job, right? Uh, and he said he'd do it, so long as he could add more humor to the film and make Jason supernaturally powerful. Um, that was done mainly because he didn't want to show any deaths that a viewer could potentially imitate. It bothered him to see in Part 5, where one of the characters was just killed with an axe by someone else in the movie who wasn't even the hockey mask killer. He He kind of wanted to have it be something that could not be done for real. Um, the studio agreed, so long as Jason himself was not made the butt of any jokes. Uh, John Shepard, who was Tommy in the previous movie, decided the new tone didn't interest him and decided not to return as Tommy Jarvis. That's not too surprising to me. He seemed to take the role very seriously and prepped for it quite seriously. Um, so Tom Matthews plays Tommy in the series. That's T-H-O-M, Tom Matthews also played Freddy in the horror classic Return of the Living Dead and Joey in its sequel. The actors in that franchise never reprised their roles for reasons that will become very obvious in a few episodes. He also performed opposite Kathy Ireland in the MST3K fan favorite Alien from L.A. Dull surprise. The movie also stars Jennifer Cook as Megan probably best known for the role of Elizabeth in the various V series and miniseries, David Kagan as Sheriff Garris, plenty of day player roles on TV, but he's probably best known as a teacher at David Kagan's School of Film Acting, where his former pupils have included Ted Danson, Alec Baldwin, and Robin Wright Penn, Carrie Noonan as Paula, several guest roles on television, Renee Jones, another prolific TV day player. As you may recall, the Friday the 13th series at this point draws a lot from film and TV actors who are mostly character actors or who are known for smaller parts. These are no longer, you know, if they ever really were, stepping stones to fame. I mean, sure, Kevin Bacon, but that was as much by accident as anything else. Tom Fridley as Court, also a number of small parts on film and television, and C.J. Graham as Jason. Surprisingly few credits anywhere for someone who did such a good job of portraying Jason's intense physicality. As is usually the case once we get into the later installments, there are also a number of victim characters who are introduced almost immediately before they're killed as well. I tend not to include those in the cast list. This is not meant to be comprehensive. Special effects are credited to Martin Becker, whom we've already seen discussed in conjunction with his work on parts 3 and 5. Interestingly, well, interestingly to me anyway, this movie begins with a title card crediting the film as a Terror Inc. production. 
This fascinates me because I'm also a comics fan, and there is a little-known horror-themed Marvel anti-hero named Terror Inc., who is a bounty-hunting demon that can gain skills by cutting off people's body parts and replacing his own with them, and who has to keep doing so on a semi-regular basis because the old ones decay. Apparently he's also a film producer now. Small world. We open much like the last movie, with two people heading to Jason's gravesite in a thunderstorm, but this time it's Tommy Jarvis and a friend of his from the mental institution, Hawes, who's played by Ron Palillo, a.k.a. Horshack from Welcome Back, Cotter. He's probably the most famous face in this whole thing. And this time it's not a dream. Tommy, who's being played much more like a square-jawed heroic figure this time, albeit one with a past that haunts him, has decided that the only way to purge his demons is to dig Jason's corpse up and set it on fire. Which means, for those of you keeping track, the mayor was wrong last time and Jason was not cremated. Also, they appear to be point pointedly ignoring the end of the previous movie, not even acknowledging it as a thing that happened or didn't happen, but just simply ignoring entirely the fact that we saw at the end that Tommy had put on Jason's hockey mask and had gone insane and was planning to murder Pam. The only thing they took from that is Tommy is driving Pam's truck around. Um, supposedly Tommy's break with reality at the end was a dream sequence, but it's never explained, it's never alluded to, they just are pretending it never even happened. Over Hawes' strenuous protests, they do dig up the grave, which is kept much nicer than in Tommy's dream in Part 5. McLaughlin apparently planned for a scene that showed Jason's father still alive all, after all this time and paying to have the gravesite maintained, but that was dropped, and I, I don't think that's necessarily a bad idea. I don't necessarily know what it would have added. Then again, you know, maybe if McLaughlin had gone on to do Part 7 and 8 and 9, maybe that would have been a thread that would have been developed. But I'm not sure it's a piece of mythos that the story needed. Um, we do find Jason's worm-eating corpse, as in Part 5, but this time it looks considerably worse off than in Tommy's dream. It is desiccated, it is covered in worms and maggots and gross stuff. The they, production team really outdid themselves on this one. Overcome by rage on seeing the body, Tommy breaks off a railing from one of the cemetery fences and impales Jason repeatedly with it, leaving it stuck directly in the corpse while he goes to get a can of gas to immolate his tormentor. Now, I think this does point to him still being the same facilities in the previous movie, because he apparently has access to gasoline, shovels, long periods of time to go driving off in the company of nobody but another patient at the facility. I mean, this is entirely in keeping with what we saw last time. Again, it's very interesting, by the way, to compare all of this to the dream sequence in the preceding movie, not just, you know, as a piece of production design, which I've been doing, but just the way that they played it. Part 5 deliberately played the whole thing up very much as a surreal nightmare and then contrasted it hard with that sober realism of Tommy in the back of the van being taken to a halfway home. This sets much the same tone, but it refuses to contrast it with anything or apologize for it at all. The nonsensical logic of digging Jason up out of a graveyard taken straight from an old Hammer movie is done with absolute unflinching sincerity. The sudden lightning strike that not just resurrects but practically reinflates Jason's desiccated corpse? Of course it's absurd, but the film just looks the audience straight in the eye and says, yeah, we know. But don't pretend you wanted anything different. Sure enough, we get those multiple lightning strikes, and Jason does come back to life and crawl out of his grave. Tommy douses him with gasoline as he approaches in an attempt to carry out his plan, but the looming rainstorm begins at that exact moment, extinguishing his matches and leaving him helpless in the face of his childhood nightmare. Hawes ambushes Jason, trying to rescue his friend, and hits him with a shovel. Jason, not Tommy. But Jason shrugs off the blow, turns, and punches clean through Hawes' chest to hold his beating heart in his hand. This is, again, it, we're, we're getting into the kind of live-action cartoon phase of this series. The Jason kills in this are so over-the-top, 
so absurdly violent that they they transcend reality. They become just sort of, not quite a joke exactly, but certainly a form of heightened surrealism. Uh, there's, there's just nothing that's, not only nothing that's believable, but nothing that's even approaching believability. It's telling you, go ahead and take this on its own terms. It's kind of, kind of creating a, a, a heightened reality, an alternate form of reality, where things like this are possible. Jason shoves Hawes back into the coffin, which collapses shut, then retrieves his hockey mask, which Tommy had brought along to bury with Jason. Tommy takes the chance to run, and Jason dons the mask and the roll once more before the opening credits have even rolled. And just in case you think this movie does not 100% understand what kind of tone it's going for, as the camera closes in on Jason's eye, his ghostly figure enters the frame like Roger Moore at the beginning of a James Bond movie and slashes us into the credits. When the movie resumes, Tommy goes to the local sheriff to tell him that the slasher who killed his mom and friends as a child is part of a week-long killing spree that's haunted so badly this town that they changed the name from Crystal Lake to Forest Green, has been resurrected by a bolt of lightning. And yes, he has spent some time in a mental institution hallucinating Jason, but this is all very, very real. Incidentally, this is the confirmation that Jason killed Tommy's mom in part four. It was never shown on screen in the theatrical release, but this is where we find out that yes, she did die. Um, unsurprisingly, the sheriff does not believe Jason, but again, this isn't being played out as some sort of realistic psychodrama. This is not, you know, psychological horror. This is not a question of whether or not Tommy is genuinely having mental issues or whether he's seeing something real. This is a scene straight out of 1950s sci-fi movies like The Blob, where the punk teenagers run into the police station and tell the cops about the monster that only they could see, only to be told that, have you been drinking, young man? You know, everyone is playing their parts with this kind of heightened level of drama in keeping with the tone of the film, particularly Kagan, who understands that his role in this kind of story is to act as a sort of secondary heel figure who exists only to be proven wrong. Tommy is locked up, despite his warnings that Jason is going to return to his old stomping grounds near Camp Crystal Lake. Actually, that's not quite true. Tommy, at different points in the movie, says that either Jason is going to come after him to get revenge for his murder, or he is going to go back to Camp Crystal Lake. But as it turns out a few minutes later, he is heading back to Camp Crystal Lake. Two of the senior counselors, Darren and Elizabeth, played by Tony Goldwyn and the director's wife, Nancy McLaughlin, are forced to stop on a small dirt track when Jason stands in the middle of the road and won't make way. They try to intimidate him into moving, to no effect, and when J Darren decides to get out and threaten Jason with a pistol, Jason impales him with the cemetery railing that he's still carrying. Elizabeth gets out of the car and tries to flee. There's actually a really wonderful shot here. It's done from inside the car. She dives to the right, flattening herself as she crawls for the passenger door, and Graham was supposed to stab through and hit the driver's side window, but apparently he is a former Marine, and he tracked the moving target instinctively and narrowly missed her head as she's diving, and the camera catches the whole thing. If you watch, he tilts the cemetery railing midway through the stab to adjust for her. It's a genuinely terrifying effect. Uh, but she does make it out of the car. She does try to flee. She falls into a deep puddle, which was the reason they couldn't back up. They were worried about going into that same puddle, and Jason murders her as well. And I'll admit... This is a jump scare that did kind of get me as she's trying to give Jason money, fumbling for her wallet, desperate to do anything to placate him, and then she looks up and he's just gone. And then he pops up behind her and jams the railing through her head. It, it, it's a remarkably effective scene, I'll admit. I, I, I freely admit it. <laughs> The next morning, Sheriff's daughter Megan and her friends, who are the junior counselors, go to the police station to report the disappearance. Tommy warns them that Jason's returned, and Megan is immediately smitten with him, 
or possibly just smitten with the fact that her daddy clearly doesn't want her to be smitten with him, because she's got a lot of issues with her father's dual locuses of authority in this town, and delights in defying him at every turn. The sheriff sends the kids away and tells Tommy he's going to escort him to the city lot. Meanwhile, back at the cemetery, by the way, this does all seem to point to Part 5 being taking place at least near Crystal Lake, possibly somewhere else in the same state. It's, like I said, Part 5 was very hard to track as a physical location, but this does seem to place it near enough that Tommy can drive to the cemetery. Back at said cemetery, the caretaker has found the mess that Tommy left behind, although Haw's body fell directly into the coffin and the lid fell on it, so there's only one shoe sticking out, and it makes it appear that Jason's body is still in the grave. Fearful of being accused of dereliction of duty, the cemetery caretaker fills in the hole without tucking the body in, because really, who could blame him, while complaining about the sick habits of strangers. Some folks have a strange idea of entertainment, he says, looking directly into the camera like he's in an episode of The Office, in another clear signifier of the film's deliberately absurd, campy tone. Again, this is not a dumb movie by any stretch. This is a very intelligent movie. It's just a very intelligent movie that is trying very hard to be unpretentious fun. It is a movie that is hearkening back to the old Universal era of horror, right down to the lightning storm reanimating the monster, where being scared and being spooked was exactly what they were going for, and the violence, at this point you can't tone down the violence in a Friday the 13th movie, it's what people come for, so they did the opposite. They ramped it up to the point where it doesn't even look like anything real. It, it does, again, it looks like cartoons. It looks like the sort of thing that happens to Wile E. Coyote. Back at Camp Forest Green, as it's now called, the counselors are unpacking their stuff and speculating about Tommy's warnings when the kids show up for opening day. Now this marks... A, the first time we've gone back to the original Camp Crystal Lake since Part 2, and the first time it's been a central location since Part 1. I find that so fascinating, because everyone thinks of this as a series that takes place at Camp Crystal Lake, and really, it's remarkably rare that the series actually goes there. It's downright strange at times. Um, it's also B, the first time that we've ever seen the summer camp that's supposedly central to the entire series being inhabited by actual children of any kind, and this was done by McLaughlin very deliberately. He wanted the kids there because he thought that it would escalate the stakes to have children in peril. Um, spoiler alert, there are no children who get killed in this, which I think was also a very good decision. I think it would have been just a much less fun movie if actual kids had died. And see, this is also the point at which the character delivering ominous warnings about the curse of camp blood is the actual protagonist and not just someone at the beginning who foreshadows things for the actual protagonist. Tommy in part six is Ralph from part one, basically, and I kind of wish they'd done more with that because it's a really neat concept to tell the story from that point of view. We never found out why Ralph was warning people about Camp Blood, and it, it would have been interesting to find that out, and it would be interesting to play up this idea that Tommy is seen as that kind of a figure. Meanwhile, Jason is continuing his blood-soaked rampage through the forest on his way to Camp Blood and encounters a group of insurance executives playing paintball. Now, there really could not be anything more mid-80s than seeing a bunch of corporate types dressed up in camo, spouting inane metaphors about commerce as combat while playing out their petty office politics spats with real violence. And I I'm saying this in the best of lights. It fits into the ethos of this movie so perfectly, because we don't root for Jason at this point, but at the same time, we don't root for his victims either. We don't want there to not be killings. Killings are half the fun, especially at this point when they're just being treated as these big, absurd, over-the-top set pieces. So having victims that you can not be tremendously bothered by is a function of the series at this point. 
And again, the the paintball thing, this is so 80s. This this just drips uh, 80s, and, and it's one of those things where it's almost amazing that it took someone this long to get to it, but again, we're at the point where it's kind of campy, grand guignol-type atmosphere, and it wouldn't have fit in part one. In this particular case, Macho Executive Larry and his even more macho partner Stan are both arguing about their macho sport of macho-ness, when they're shot by Katie, who's already taken out uber-macho paintball legend Bert. Bert is off in the wilderness, chopping underbrush with a machete and sulking. All three complain that women shouldn't even be allowed to play, and it's right around there that Jason does exactly what we hope he'll do by literally ripping Bert's arm clean out of its socket when he takes away the machete. There's just one player in the game, apart from Katie, comically incompetent Roy, but just as he gets the drop on Katie and her prisoners, Jason shows up and decapitates Stan, Larry, and Katie with one swing of his machete. Again, cartoon deaths. There's no way that any real human could do that, but for Jason, at this point in the series, he can't not do spectacular over-the-top kills. It's what his M.O. is. Roy shoots Jason with his paintball gun, because how else do you even end a scene like that, then runs as Jason gives chase. Now, a brief word about C.J. Graham's Jason. He is magnificent in the part. We've seen these silent slasher types before, and they do have a very similar style of deliberate, mechanical movement inspired by Nick Castle's shape in the original Halloween, Michael Myers. But Graham adds his own element to the performance, and again, I do not include Part 2's Jason in with this. He does not move in that Michael Myers-type mechanical motion, but Graham gives Jason this sense of urgency that was previously lacking. This is a Jason who hunts his victims like he's late for an appointment or something, and he power walks after him with a determined set to his shoulders that is genuinely menacing. I don't know why they didn't ask him back for more of these. We don't immediately see what happens to Roy. Instead, we cut to Tommy, who's being escorted out of town by the sheriff, but who instead decides to take an unscheduled detour to the cemetery to prove his story is true. He knows that if he does go off course, the cops will follow him, which is all part of his plan. But of course, when he gets there, the caretaker is already filled in the grave and pretends it would never disturb making Tommy look even more irrational as a result. Oddly enough, the attempt to make the cops look stupid and violent adds an odd element of realism to what's supposed to be a cartoonish film. Deputy Rick, played by Vincent Guastafaro, pulls a gun on Tommy even after he's in handcuffs and takes great delight in demonstrating how easy his new laser sight makes killing someone, and it feels disturbingly accurate. The sheriff escorts Tommy to the city line in a surprisingly beautiful sunset shot with some amazing cinematography, and tells him never to return, while back at camp, Megan and the other counselors muddle through their way of dealing with a bus full of kids as best they can, because they're obviously expecting the senior counselors to give them more guidance, and unbeknownst to them, the senior counselors are all dead. Court, the quote-unquote boys' camp counselor, is especially incompetent, as well as sexist and kind of gross, but again, we're at a stage in the series where you're almost rooting for these characters to get killed off in spectacular ways, so Court is, is jockeying to be the guy you want to see killed. Meanwhile, Jason is continuing his killing spree like he never left off. I mean, like he never left off from part four. Murdering the caretaker, who's gotten drunk and is wandering through the woods, and also murdering a random couple in the area who are celebrating their engagement with a nighttime picnic. Of the whole movie, this is probably the sequence that feels least essential. This set of murders aren't especially impressive visually, they don't add much to the story. That said, it's a lot less intrusive than the similar scenes in the previous installment. This isn't interrupting the story, this is the story. Part 6 is about Jason's bloody rampage through the woods of Camp Crystal Lake, nothing more, so even the most irrelevant scenes of Carnage are still keeping with the film's aesthetic instead of fighting it. We're not dealing with psychological horror like we were in Part 5, which kept getting interrupted by these 
over-the-top scenes of grand grignol violence with cartoon rural grotesques, we're getting a movie that is strictly that campy, cartoonish, heightened reality aesthetic. Back at camp, Paula and Sissy are alone with the kids, and they spend a little time comforting little Nancy, who's just had a bad dream. I have to believe that this was an intentional reference to Nightmare on Elm Street, which was by this point just getting established as a rival franchise. Part 2 had come out the previous year in 1985, so it was a movie that was seen as, as a slasher movie, a popular slasher movie, a movie that was getting sequels, but it was not yet the juggernaut that would lead us to Freddy vs. Jason. They speculate on the whereabouts of Megan and Court. Turns out Court has gone to see a friend of his, Nikki, who's parked her dad's RV at a local campground and is having sex with him. Again, this is another one of those scenes where it's like, well, yep, this is about what you're going to get at this stage in the series. You are going to get teens having sex and getting killed. Uh, Jason shows up and cuts their power, and they decide after only a cursory investigation of their surroundings that it might be better to simply leave. And, you know, these are movies that get a lot of flack for teenagers doing stupid things, but this is a scene where they do about what I would do in these circumstances. They go outside to see what's going on, they circle the RV once, they don't see anything, and they say, you know what, something's messed up here, let's just go. And they get in, and the car starts, and they just go. But unbeknownst to them, Jason slipped into the RV and is hiding in the bathroom. And as Court starts to pull away, he is slammed on the accelerator and turned up the Alice Cooper on the radio. Cooper did the soundtrack for the whole movie, in fact. He pulls Nikki into the bathroom and shoves her face into the side of the vehicle so hard that it leaves an impression on the metal, which, again, it serves to make it even more clear this is essentially a live-action horror cartoon. That is the sort of thing that happens in Looney Tunes when people run into things. They either leave a sh hole in the shape of themselves, or they leave that imprint, that perfect face-shaped imprint, and she does, right down to the little mouth gap and everything. These are cartoons. This is a cartoonish movie, and it's consciously, intelligently, and deliberately so. Jason then stabs Court in the side of the head and sends the whole vehicle flipping over, he climbs out of the wreckage and continues his path back to what he considers home. The, the RV flip is a pretty impressive stunt, by the way. It, it's one of those ones that, you know, they had one take and so they shot a lot of angles and it looks good. At the police station, Megan is doing a little deliberate goading of her father. Not for any particular purpose, she just really does not feel like she needs to respect her father's authority, and she wants to let him know that at every turn, when the deputy calls in with the warning that they've started finding bodies that were killed using Jason's old M.O. The sheriff assumes that it's Tommy, who is apparently so determined to quote-unquote prove that Jason is back, that he's now killing people just like Jason did, and goes looking for him. There's probably a very interesting movie that could be made out of John Shepard's Tommy being further gaslit by uncaring authority figures who believe him to be the killer that the end of Part 5 hinted at, but this absolutely isn't that movie and it isn't trying to be. Instead, Tommy's looking at books on the occult that I guess he just found at the local library or something to find a way to lay Jason back to rest. He calls the sheriff's office, but gets Megan instead. Megan, for her part, is absolutely thrilled to have a chance to do something exciting, stick it to her dad, and spend some time with her new crush all rolled into a single package. I'd even say this is a criticism of the character. This isn't a movie that has characters that we're supposed to be psychoanalyzing. We're not supposed to be wondering what would lead Megan to this kind of thrill-seeking behavior. We're just supposed to be like, yes, this is a fun, vivacious, charming young woman doing incredibly fun things and showing the greatest glee at it. And Jennifer Cook plays the role all the way up to the hilt. She gives this wild grin and whoop of excitement when she tells Tommy to stay put and wait for her to pick him up so that he can ditch his easily identifiable car. 
And honestly, I think she's one of my favorite characters in the whole series. I mean, I'm always going to have a soft spot for Alice, the original final survivor. I think she's a wonderful actress with an amazingly expressive face. But outside of that, Megan, Jennifer Cook just plays this role with so much charm and enthusiasm. And I also think that uh, Tom Matthews is doing exactly what he needs to do for this version of Tommy as well. He's not trying to recreate John Shepard's performance. He's not trying to play a serious, traumatized teen. He's not trying to create authentic PTSD. He's an action hero in a sci-fi movie. He is playing this like Steve McQueen in The Blob and the various descendants thereof. And he does a very good job of contra of conveying steadfast resolve and seriousness without simply devolving into cardboard protagonist syndrome, which can happen when you are playing a character that doesn't have a whole lot of moral complexity, I think. While Tommy waits at Karloff's General Store, which is near Cunningham Street, apparently, and watched over by Sheriff Garris, I assume he's named after Mick Garris, there's a lot of fun nods to famous figures in horror in this film. We see Jason standing in front of a familiar spot, the entrance to a famous summer camp. He recognizes it despite the makeover to Camp Forest Green, and strides right through the gates. It's been a long time. But Jason has come home at last. Meanwhile, the cops are clearing up the bodies of the paintballers, and they're horrified by quote-unquote Tommy's rampage. And when we do finally see here what happened to Roy, there's body parts scattered all over the place. I don't even know if they find all of him in the end. They seem to think that Tommy has chosen this day specifically because it's Friday the 13th, but... I think this may be the first actual mention of Friday the 13th, the date, in a Friday the 13th movie. It's weird to only now, six installments in, hear it and suddenly impart it with any kind of significance, and yet, again, it feels perfectly at home in this over-the-top, grand guignol atmosphere McLaughlin's creating. This is a movie that is very self-aware in a lot of fun ways. It's almost a precursor to the horror movies of the 90s that would go for this attempt uh, at, at self-awareness and meta-horror and meta-comedy in a much more overt way. And at least according to the interviews I saw, McLaughlin said that uh, Kevin Williamson, the man who wrote the screenplay for Scream, did say that he took a lot of inspiration for the tone from movies like this. So I, I think that really this is a movie that's more... Um, influential, maybe, than it, it initially appears for being part six of a franchise that's kind of, at this point, seen by a lot of people as running on rails. But then again, I think that the Friday the 13th series is generally more experimental than it's giving credit for. The first film is a cinema verite, very realistic slasher movie with effects by a Vietnam veteran who is trying to recreate the same kind of trauma he saw in combat photographs, and from there it moves to this sort of hyper-stylized slasher movie of parts three, this meta-horror collision of genres in part four, an attempt at psychological horror in part five, and this live-action cartoon in part six. It's all over the map, and they keep trying new things just to see where they can go for another movie. I think it's impressive as hell, to be honest. In the actual movie, getting back to that, Jason cuts the phone lines with his machete, then goes after the counselors. He makes a noise outside to attract Sissy's attention, then drags her out through the window and she goes to investigate. There's a wonderful shot of him yanking her out the window so fast that her slippers fly clean off her feet, which, again, it just feels perfect for this movie. And then he tears her head clean off her shoulders with his bare hands. Now, she does have the notable virtue of not being the first major character to die, that was Court, but this is not the movie that's going to improve Friday the 13th's franchise record for representation when it comes to black women. Sissy is another character who's just a victim. She does not get to survive the movie, and she doesn't get to do a whole lot. Thankfully, there's no really overt stereotyping like there is in part three with the black characters there, but 
this is this is probably a a low C minus when it comes to representation. It's got to be said. Probably even a D plus. Poor little Nancy sees Jason walk by her cabin with the headless body of Sissy slung over his shoulder and sits straight up in bed, traumatized for life. Now, I joke about that, but probably these kids would be traumatized for life if this was being taken seriously, but it's not. These are kids that are going to have a big fun adventure, like the Goonies, or, you know, like the characters in a Scooby-Doo story. They're not going to be traumatized for life. They're going to be spooked. And that's about it. Megan picks up Tommy, clearly having more fun than she's had in the last five years easily, and they head back to camp, but they run into a roadblock that's been set by the cops, who are all, of course, looking for Tommy. And Megan decides she's going to try to run the blockade. Again, Jennifer Cook really gets exactly what this movie is going for, and she leans into it brilliantly. She is giggling, she is grinning, she shoves Tommy down under the guise of telling him to lay low and hide from the cops, but she is practically shoving his face right into her lap, and from the way she talks about it, she knows exactly what she's doing. It's, I mean, it's obviously not appropriate behavior, but again, this is a cartoon. These people are not meant to be seen as someone who has real consequences for their actions. Tommy is not going to be someone who is bothered by being effectively sexually assaulted. He is a cartoon character. He is a, a caricature of real life. And so these things are encouraged to be played for laughs simply by the way everyone is responding to them. Uh, in the end, though, Sheriff Garris knows his daughter all too well. He catches up, uh, not catches up with her, he in fact gets to where she is going next and waits there for her, and he catches them and takes them off to jail. Paula, meanwhile, is woken by a machete-wielding figure, but it's not Jason, it's Nancy who found the blood-soaked weapon outside her cabin and sensibly brought it to an adult. Now, despite the fact that it should be really, really, really obvious that it's covered in actual gore just from the smell alone, Paula insists that it's just Court and Sissy playing jokes on each other and brings Nancy back to bed. And again, I've talked about this before, I'll probably talk about it again, movies have a tendency to forget about the senses that the audience won't experience. So you don't, things don't have smells, they don't have textures, they don't have tastes. And it's most obvious usually when dealing with the scent of blood. There is no real world scenario in which you would confuse fake blood for real blood or vice versa, but in movies people do all the time. When Paula brings Nancy back to bed, she tells Nancy that if anything bad happens in the night, she should just close her eyes and say a prayer, and everything will be all right and the trouble will magically be gone when she opens her eyes again. This is really terrible advice in this particular set of circumstances, but Paula has no way of knowing that. She leaves Nancy and the other kids to sleep, and there's this wonderful shot as she leaves the kid's cabin of Jason silhouetted through the window, staying exactly one step behind her as she walks. She gets outside, there's nothing, she goes back to her cabin, still nothing. She closes the door, and just as she's closing the door, Jason pushes it back open, and she gets it bad. We don't see most of it. But judging by the results they show later, this has to be the single most brutal death in franchise history. He smashes her face through a window at one point and then drags her back inside. That's all we physically see of this fight, but it is... Again, we'll skip ahead a little. There is blood everywhere. There are eyeballs on the floor. This is horrifying stuff, even by the standards of this movie. And it's kind of out of keeping with Jason's M.O. Usually he makes very swift kills, and frequently he cleans up the crime scene afterwards, but I guess he takes his time with Paula. Maybe she looked a little too much like Alice? I don't know. Back at the station, Sheriff Garris locks Tommy up and leaves him and Megan with Deputy Rick while he goes to investigate the camp. 
Megan insists to her dad that Tommy couldn't be the killer because she was with him when Court died, which appears to be a lie when you look at the timeline, but then again, Tommy was definitely with Sheriff Garris when the paintballers were killed, so he's got an alibi for these kills no matter what. Once Sheriff leaves, Megan writes messages to Tommy under the guise of sketching, communicating her escape plan. She and Tommy pretend to fight, and when she throws the sketch pad at him, he grabs it and refuses to return it. This naturally ends with them making out through the bars, because this is one of Megan's plans. Again, it's really amazing how much character development she packs into such a short amount of screen time. You really have a very vivid sense of what she does in any set of circumstances. And when the deputy breaks it up, she takes the opportunity to grab his special laser-sighted gun out of his holster and train it on him, leaning to what I think is the best exchange in the whole movie. Megan, don't clown around. I'm not the one with the funny red nose. They lock Rick in the cell and head for the camp to prevent what has to be the potential to be the biggest massacre in franchise history with two full cabins of preteen kids there. Tommy reveals that his plan is to, somehow, trap Jason back in the lake where he drowned back in 1957, which is how long ago now? The timeline's really messed up after Part 5's time jump. Sheriff Garris and his cops show up at the camp, drawing Jason's attention just as he's about to kill Nancy mid-prayer. Of all the times to suddenly show up with a pro-Christianity subplot, this is a very weird one. And I have read speculation that this was written in to try to attract John Shepard back to play the part again, because he had gotten pretty heavily into born-again Christianity at that point. In any event, whatever the reason, Jason decides to hunt the more important targets. He leaves the girls' cabins just as Sheriff Garris finds the absolutely blood-soaked scene of Paula's death. Jason kills the first cop with one of Bert's knives. Bert really had a lot of absolutely lethal weapons for a paintballer. It's kind of scary. And the second by crushing the man's skull with his bare hands in a scene that really demonstrates the terrifying implacability of this version of Jason. He shrugs off bullets, he's inhumanly strong, he's really more a force of nature than a slasher now. He's this walking murder storm that you can't hope to fight, only escape. It, at least in part three and part four, he could be injured, he could be knocked down, he could be stalled out, he could even be incapacitated, but this Jason is the apotheosis of the indestructible slasher, and you can see why this is the real new beginning for the franchise. This opens up so many possibilities for stories because Jason is genuinely unkillable. It's terrifying. Sheriff Garris gets all the kids together in one cabin, instructing them to hide under the beds, and goes to find Jason. He blasts him with a shotgun repeatedly, but this new Jason is only mildly inconvenienced by bullets. Like, the shotgun knocks him down, and then he just gets right back up again. He pursues Garris, who, to his credit, draws the killer away from the children in his flight. Megan and Tommy arrive, and Megan immediately gets an idea of how serious the situation is when she finds Paula's remains. Now, there could be a version of this where this is kind of Paula... Or kind of Megan getting her moral comeuppance for being such a thrill-seeker earlier, where she realizes how bad things really are and immediately freaks out. But no, she doesn't. She does not crack up. She goes, pulls herself together after only a moment of shock and goes to check on the kids while Tommy goes down to the docks to implement his quote-unquote plan. I'm a little sarcastic about Tommy's plan. Not that the movie should feel bad about it. This is... This is a plan that is designed to be a little bit shambolic, but Tommy should probably be afraid, ashamed of it just a little bit. Megan reassures the children, promising them that they'll all be safe, and goes looking for her father. And another sign of the film's deliberate blending of humor and horror comes from two of the boys, who agree with this very Gen X indifference that they're probably not going to survive the night. So what were you going to be when you grew up, one asks the other. And I love that line. I love everything about the aesthetic of this film. It is so charming. 
Calling for her dad attracts Jason's attention, but Garrus saves her life by sacrificing himself in an ultimately futile attack that ends with him folded in half backwards. She goes down to the docks to find Tommy to try to get help, but Tommy is attaching a chain to a heavy rock that he's placed in a boat, and the other end of the chain he's made into an impromptu loop. He motors out into the center of the lake and shouts for Jason to come and fight the man who killed him. That's it. That's his plan, is he's got a heavy rock and he's going to fight Jason and tie a ro uh, the chain around his neck and then throw it in the water. That's his plan. It's not really a plan so much as a vague set of goals, to be honest. Jason walks straight into the water, disappearing under the lake, because, oh right, he can swim, as we saw in part four. Tommy realizes that, yes, in fact, all he's done is giving Jason the perfect chance to ambush him, and he responds by dumping out a bunch of gasoline on into the water and setting it on fire. Now, again, this is a tense action sequence. This is a great scene in a great movie, but I'm really questioning his claim of having a plan here. Unless his plan was to deliberately trap himself in a circle of flame with a hidden spree killer. I again, it, I... This is not a flaw in the movie. The movie's not responsible for giving Tommy a better plan. It's just, it boggles my mind that he thought this would ever work. Jason lunges out of the water and they struggle, with Tommy finally gaining the upper hand somehow, just long enough to loop the chain around Na Jason's neck. Now, if I were to nitpick, I would point out that, realistically speaking, this is like I say, super strong murder storm Jason. There is no way that Tommy should be able to fight him even a little. Tommy is not combat trained. Tommy is not anything special or, or, or significant in terms of his real world abilities, but he is the hero and this is the last act of the movie, so Jason suddenly becomes just challenged enough by a fight with a normal human being that Tommy can dramatically loop the chain around the neck, just as Jason smashes the boat in half, sending the rock to the bottom and him with it. But he clings to Tommy, apparently drowning the young man before releasing him. And then he just pulls the loop free from his neck, because it's not wrapped tightly, it... Uh, no, no, wait, I'm sorry. He breaks the chain with his inhuman strength... N no, I'm, I'm sorry, he drags the rock out of the water with his inhuman strength... It, no, obviously he does none of those things, because the movie's almost over, and this is the point where the th plan works for no apparent reason. And again, I don't mind this. I, I know that there's some, you know, vague hand-wavy occult nonsense about he's trapped in the waters of Crystal Lake and he's being laid back to rest, but this is really just the point at which the hero's plan works because we're out of movie, and in a movie like this, that's fine. That's the aesthetic of the movie. We're supposed to be rooting for Tommy's plan to work and not think too hard about why it's not, uh, why all of the reasons why it shouldn't, because this is a movie that is encouraging us to simply go along for the ride. Megan swims out to grab, to rescue Tommy, but Jason reaches up and grabs her by the ankle, which means that he can't be in more than about 12 feet of water tops. Maybe he should get, like, a marker buoy to warn swimmers not to get close? But Megan uses the boat motor to tear up his face, distracting him just long enough to let her escape. Again, I don't think that this movie is dumb. I think it knows that the gas for the motor was already used in lighting the fire. It's just that this is a movie that is operating on a heightened level of reality with its own rules, and it's encouraging us to be in on the joke. If you take it at face value, everything works at face value. This is how the plot happens. If you look into it a little deeper and notice all of the absurdities and inconsistencies, the movie kind of looks at you, winks, and says, yeah, we know. But isn't it just so much fun? Case in point... Megan brings Tommy back to shore and gives him CPR in the most cinematic CPR fashion possible, 
anyone who's done Red Cross training will look at this and just facepalm, but it's not supposed to be real CPR, it's supposed to be movie CPR. And so of course it works, and of course Tommy just coughs up a little water, and he's fine at that point. Oh yes, and Nancy is praying for him, which is clearly the important part. Although they did cut the bit where Nancy looks up at the heavens right after he's saved and whispers a silent, Thank you. <laughs> I, I kid, but honestly, that's the perfect ending for a movie like this. This is exactly what the movie should end like. It should end with a happy ending, with the hero getting the monster, with the, the hero and the, the young woman winding up together. Although, arguably, Megan is the hero. She's the one who chopped Jason's face up with the boat motor. And with all of the kids being saved. It's, it's the kind of thing that it should do. And, of course, it ends the way a film like this has to end. With Jason trapped beneath the waters of Camp Crystal Lake, silent and unmoving, but still alive. Always. Eternally. Alive. And in case it's not obvious, yes, I, I would definitely be keeping this one, even if I wasn't keeping the whole box set based on my reactions to part one and four. This is a movie that's just a lot of unpretentious fun. It is a throwback to any number of horror movies that the director loved. It's self-aware, fun meta-horror. It is campy comedy, it is live-action cartoon. It's the sort of movie that you could just sit down and watch for a good time with a large group of people. It encourages that kind of winking and smiling and knowing that what you're watching doesn't necessarily make a whole lot of real-world sense, but it's not trying to. It's, it's just, it's a good, fun, thrill ride of a movie. And there's nothing wrong with that kind of unpretentious popcorn fun. And if you agree, disagree, or just want to chat about anything else that came about the, uh, in this pop, uh, popcorn podcast, you can find me on Twitter as at HalfHorror and on Tumblr as at HalfPriceHorror. I'm also on Letterboxd as HalfPriceHorror, no spaces on any of these, where you can see reviews of all the movies I've watched for the podcast and a list of everything I intend to tackle in future episodes. I really love hearing from people. I'd really love to know if there's a movie you want me to see before I see any of the others. And uh, I'd just love to chat about movies. You can also rate and review me on Apple Podcasts and anywhere else this podcast is found. It can be found on any of the Anchor Podcast locations. Although, if you're listening to this, presumably you know where to find it because you've found it. Um, yeah. Also, again, I hate saying this, but... Apple's algorithm at least demands five stars, or you might as well not leave a review. Please feel free to rate me at five stars and then leave a review telling me all of the things that I can improve about this podcast. It's, it's so embarrassing having to talk about it like that. And next time on Half Price Horror, we take a trip back to the 70s, to the heyday of New Age parapsychology, for a British made-for-TV movie that's a classic of the genre. It's arguably the most famous teleplay from the legendary Nigel Neal, BBC's 1972 film The Stone Tape. See you then!